Yeah, I just want to pray that simple prayer from Ephesians 1 to open the night again. Welcome to the God story, the development, Israel. Um, this evening, we are going to travel a few thousand years in time. Are you guys up for that? <laughs> and that is impossible without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> The development is about the music of the song moving away from the home key in this progressive tension. This place will be, from Noah, we're going to rise pretty much all the way to David. And um, tomorrow night we'll look at the tearing and the ripping of the heart of God and the people of Israel. And it's a pretty wild drama. You're going to see the passion of the Father tonight. You're going to feel his heart bursting to have his children. And um, I ask that the Holy Spirit would just take us along in this melody tonight. So, glorious Father, we ask together that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. We want to have passion for you and passion for your story. To know who you are, God, and who we are when we come to you. Take us out of our personal drama and set us into the living story. Bringing forth the desire of your heart from all of eternity. We invite you and we thank you that we cannot know you apart from you. So come Holy Spirit and work in us tonight. Amen. The development. I want to go back to one part quickly in the story. It's that magical moment when God and Eve lean over the sleeping sun. And Adam's eyes open and he bursts into poetry. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of me. And then it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. In the development, you are going to feel the passion of God to have one covenant partner. That will restore such a deep and vulnerable trust and confidence in his goodness. That from their relationship a family will be born of all of the families on the face of the earth. And what is so amazing about this moment when Adam bursts into poetry is that Jesus himself will burst into this own poetry saying, now I have left my father. 
I have left my eternal family and I will cleave bone to bone, flesh to flesh with this bride and we will become one in covenant. Do you feel that? To understand the story of Israel, you have to understand that the trust that was on its way to being established in the garden was broken in half, that the heart of God was broken, that the command was forsaken, and that God was on a mission by his own sacrificial provision to have a wife for himself, and from that wife to have a family of all peoples. This is the tension of the development, and it is absolutely a crazy ride to go on. And what is wonderful is that the bride is what he calls his son. It's wild. By the sixth generation on, from Adam and Eve, it says that this guy, Lamech, married two women. Six generations in, One covenant partner, and Jesus will come later and he will appeal back as God made it in the beginning. The creator made it one man and one woman. And six generations in, you will see the heart of God that set into place the grand image of what his kingdom is all about. Covenant marriage and family immediately be ripped into two. And this man will choose two wives and you will find a division played out in the natural that will begin to happen with God and the people. Oh. God in his grace gives Seth the loss of Eve losing her son. And the Lord hears her prayer And at that time, people begin to realize God is the God who answers prayer. And men begin to call on the name of the Lord. And you can follow this line down. Genesis 5 takes you into a lineage. Lineage in the Bible is not something to step over. It is something to dwell in. Because this story is about the righteous generations of God. The family legacy because God is A family. And so it gives a lineage down from Seth, and you follow the line of God's blessing. And this is the way that redemption will move forward through the lines of righteous generations of mothers and fathers who bless their children. And that blessing is not some cute little thing. It actually carries the dynamic, redemptive DNA of God to bring forth redemption on the planet. And it moves through natural lines. How incredible. Think of our lives in this room and the power of entering in to the righteous generations of Jesus. The blessing that is established. So when this line is moving, you begin to see at the same time this 
horrible downward spiral of the breakdown of trust and relationship, which is the fabric of the created universe coming out of the being of God that we saw. And as trust and relationship is broken down, we get to a point in the story where God's heart is described for the first time in eternity. And those of you uh, who have heard, leave your emotions at the back of the caboose. I would appeal for a greater depth of your humanity in the image of God, that God is the God of emotion. And what he describes is that his heart is completely filled with pain, and he begins to grieve that he ever created something that could move him to the point of pain. Can you imagine the vulnerability of God to create us who could wound him? It was a risk, in other words, for God to make creation. A risk that was worth taking for love. But you find in this place, in uh, Noah's story, where, and, and turn with me to Genesis 6. Verse 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind that I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. And then there's this glorious pause in the story. Some have called it the glorious but. Um, But Noah, maybe you'll remember that now. But Noah, what we're about to find in the story is that we are seamlessly connected to every redemptive moment in human history. In other words, when God says, but Noah, we are inside of Noah finding redemption ourselves. When God will burst forth a barren womb, in that barrenness burst forth, so will burst forth the hope of our salvation. When a youngster is sent, a young baby is sent down the river in a little basket, we will ride down the river with him. When we are in the middle of siege with Hezekiah and the armies surround them to destroy, we are in that city in the promises of God. This is an amazing reality to the story. This is why you can truly say, God's story is my story. And we're going to find out why in a little bit. God says, but Noah found favor because he was righteous in his generation. Something God saw when he looked at Noah's heart was what he was looking for in the garden. A son that would trust him. A son that would love him. A son that would walk in faith. Not that Noah was perfect, but that Noah believed rightly of God as his loving dad and rightly of himself as someone who found his life in God. And this so moved God's heart 
that in the middle of him saying, my heart is grieved and filled with pain, and I am going to do a story restart. In, in other words, I'm going to uncreate my good and very good creation. Can you imagine? Noah has so captured his heart, and not just Noah, but Noah's family. Don't you love that God is about to not just preserve a man, but a man and a woman, families and families of every animal. And God begins, as poetically said, to weep from the pain in his heart and uncreates the creation But a family is preserved. It's never rained before. And God says, build a boat. A hundred years in. What are you doing? Water's come up from the ground up to this point. What are you doing? It begins to rain. The families come in. A year they're in this smelly boat or so. And then God says, it's time to come out. When Noah steps out of the boat, he steps out as the first family of a whole new world. And you stand there in the legacy. It's absolutely wild. And what does the father say to Noah? He addresses him as the new Adam. He says in Genesis 9-1, Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? In other words, I've still got the same dream. I'm a dad that wants to fill the earth with my family glory image. I've still got the same dream. He says, I give into your hands every living thing. And he says, and I will set a sign before, your, before you, Genesis 9, 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, God's like, I don't want to do that again. And whenever I see the rainbow, I myself will remember the covenant I've made to preserve the world and my family until I can bring forth full redemption. This is on me. Covenant is about trust in relationship restored. It's God's vulnerable oath and commitment to say, I myself will enter into redeeming all that was lost in the originality of my design. I am going to do this. What an amazing dad. I want my family. What's so tragic is right after this beautiful restart, we see this relationship-destroying seed called sin Breaking down trust in family. We watch as a son exposes and dishonors his father in his nakedness and shames him. While two other sons back into the tent and cover his nakedness. Oh my goodness generation. Let us honor those who have gone before us and not shame them or tear them down. You can only reproduce what is in your heart. 
Let us not be dishonoring to the generations before us. Let us not be the deconstructionists, but let us be the honoring builders of a family future. And God curses one, Canaan, from the line of Ham, and he blesses others, and you will follow the lineage of Shem to this crazy guy named Abram. And you can look at this lineage. Again, in the midst of judgment, the kindness of the Lord is present. And what's about to happen in the story, and this is Genesis 12, just before you get there, God initiates with a man named Terah. And and basically speaks to him and his family and says, Come with me to the land of Canaan. And along the way, this father doesn't walk all the way into the promise of God. And he stops and he camps halfway in Haran. And you just are left in the story to think, what if he was the Abram? What if, Her- what if this man, Terah, was the father of all faith? Isn't it wild? But something got sown into his son through that relationship that said, I am going to carry on the legacy that my father has stopped. I don't understand what the transaction was, but something was there. And where he had stopped, God steps in. And this This little portion of scripture in Genesis 12, it can be said that to even a greater degree that the fall had impact in a negative way, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, this moment in history had even greater impact for the good than what the fall had for evil. I think John Stott said this is the text that the rest of the Bible will spend its time unfolding. This is like a pay attention, key in your mind, highlight all over the place, Genesis 12. The drama that will ensue around these three dynamics of a promise to a man who some think was maybe a moon worshiper. They don't know. But all of a sudden, a voice comes booming to this man and he knows he's never met anyone like who is speaking to him that day. And this encounter is a promise on which the drama of the story will hinge. And God in his absolute craziness leaves no room for him to do it any other way than through this man and his lineage. And you know what that means? We're in for a wild ride. How is God going to work with the fickle, unreliable, free choice of man in which he's covenanted through one lineage to bring forth his redemption to all the families of the earth? How in the world is God going to pull off this and this eternal purpose? This makes the ride messily human, outrageously crazy, And you start following all the motions of those who will agree and disagree with this promise. And the 
and the wild ways in which God will bring about the fulfillment of every word. For his word cannot return empty to him without fulfilling the purpose for which it is sent. So God has just made himself very vulnerable to us. What is going on? You ready to read Genesis 12? You might have already since it's up on the screen. Genesis 12, 2. Actually, I want to start with 12, 1. If you turn there. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. You feel the progressive vulnerability of this. Here is Abram in what is known as probably the height of modern civilization at that time, being asked to leave all of his modern comforts and go with a God that he's not sure who it really is, follow him out of his country, that's one level of vulnerability, out of his people and even further out of his father's household. You feel like God's up in the ante with each word in the sentence saying, do you trust me? Am I more beautiful and dazzling than anything you've seen? Do I meet you in a way that these things cannot? Am I your source? And I don't know what was going through Abram's mind, but something was so compelling in this moment that Abram wanted to leave his little self-script and join this cosmic voice that was speaking to him. Something compelled him. Maybe it was his own sense of adventure. Maybe it was that the voice was beautiful. I don't really know exactly what it is. But he was compelled to move forward. Without a promise of even where the land was. And the land that God would show him would become the land that he would like to give him as an eternal gift. So here's the promise. And I like to think of Abram's life as a marriage. In four beautiful, progressive, vulnerable stages. Maybe you can help. This can trigger kind of a a memory in your mind as you look at Abram's life this way. And I'm going to build a drama in Abram's life as I believe God was building it. This amazing love is patient, slow unfolding of rebuilding trust so God could bring the family plot of the kingdom back online through a people. And God wanted to test him to the deepest degree to find love in his heart. This is what the promise hinges around. And I like to think of it as a king sending a letter to a peasant woman in a far-off land. Here's the promise. And please don't read this like some fairy tale biblical text. Put yourself in these shoes. He says to him, Abram, and let's just read this verse again. I would like to make you into a great nation. David Blackwell Please move with me to Antarctica. I am going to make you into a massive nation. (laughs) Like, what? God? Me? One person? What are you talking about? A nation from me? 
He says, yeah, I want to bless you. There's that dynamic creating word again. This is another story restart, but this time God's not going to talk. He's not going to start with the whole vision of humanity. He's going to start with one man and one woman who happens to be barren. And he's going to start with one people, this scandal of particularity. And through this humbling scandal, God is still going to accomplish what he has spoken to Adam and to Noah. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. A land, there's still drama around this piece of property to this day. A great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise hits Abram so deeply and he says, yes. You can imagine this woman getting a letter from the king and saying, I will come and respond to this promise. You can see why God was so moved. I mean, put yourself in these shoes. I would actually like to touch every family on the face of the earth through you and your wife. What? I mean, that seems so prideful. It seems so outlandish. And what did God find in this crazy guy at 75 years old with a barren wife that said, yeah, perfect. Perfect candidate. This is the promise. I love this moment in the story. What is God going to do with this land? What is God going to do with this people, this nation? And what is God going to do to bring forth from this people through impossible means, a blessing to all the families on the face of the earth. And why in the world would this man believe it? And he does, and he goes to the land, and when he shows up in the land, God says, you're here. Abram offers a sacrifice. God says, this through you and your seed, and Galatians says the Bible does not say seeds, but one who is the seed, that is Christ. I will bless all the families on the earth. He's still thinking, I'm 75 years old. We've never had a child. He brings, at one point, he talks about 380 of his trained men in his entourage. And I was reading that today thinking, Oh my goodness, all around him he's got family having children and he's holding the promise that he himself cannot fulfill. Maybe he could fulfill in his own strength taking the land. But two and three, becoming a great nation when your wife's barren and then from that great nation blessing every family on the face of the earth, he has absolutely no power over and yet he's surrounded by people having children on every side. And he is the patriarch holding the promise. Can you imagine the disillusionment? Have you ever held a promise from God that just felt like, why does everyone else get it and I don't get it? And yet you know God has initiated. There is pain. There, <coughs> excuse me. There is grief. 
And this is what's in his heart. And he's in the land for 10 years, going around doing all kinds of crazy stuff. A famine hits the land and he goes down to Egypt. Mark that in your story memory. He lies. He's a rascal. (laughs) He talks about his wife being a sister all over the place. All kinds of stuff breaks out against those who mess with his wife. At one point, he's like, all right, Lot, we got to go separate ways. There's too much here. You go whichever way, I'll go the other way. He just trusts God with it. Lot starts walking. God says, thank you. Look north, south, east, west. Everywhere you can look is yours. And then he gets to this moment in Genesis 15. And you'll really want to mark this again in the story. Ten years he's been waiting. We love for the promises of God to happen now, right? Ten years and he's got zero breakthrough on this glorious word. And he's remembering the voice that he heard. And God shows up again a decade later. Do you feel the tension of this? And you'll mark this in your mind in Genesis 15. Turn with me. Because whenever God shows up in the story with the new unfolding of himself, he's doing something in history. And when God shows up this time, he shows up in strength. He shows up in power. The first thing I want to note before Genesis 15 is that he refused the riches of the king of Sodom. He says, I won't be defined by your riches. God comes and looks him in the eyes after 10 years and says, thank you. You've refused to be defined by these riches, but guess what? Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. I am your shield, and here's the part I love. I am your reward. Never get confused about what the promise really is. I will always be your promise. I will always be your very exceedingly great reward. No matter what inheritance you think you have, I am always the inheritance. Oh my goodness, if we can lock this into the core of our heart. My love, my provision is your reward. My fellowship is your treasure. He seals this into the core of Abram's heart and memory. And then Abram cries out, yes, but sovereign Lord, What can you give me? I still don't have a child. What about Eliezer? He's my servant. How about he inherits this deal? Do you feel the frustration to make it happen? And God looks at him and says, No, no, no. It's going to come from your tired old body. (laughs) What? And here is this beautiful moment, 430 years before the law is given, Abram does something that moves the heart of God and establishes the plot once again. And you want to know what he does? He believes God. He believes God. Faith is a vulnerable 
active confidence and trust in the goodness of God and his promise. And here's what's going on. I want to look at this next thing and we'll, then we'll go back. Genesis 15, 6. The New Testament makes a big stinking deal out of this. By faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, before the law, God looked at Abram and said, Righteous, you are in right covenant relationship with me, not by your own good works, but because you trusted my promise. Now I want to show you something. This will unlock the New Testament for you. Okay? When I saw this just a few months ago, I was so excited and so blown away. Again, faith, confident trust in the goodness of God, righteousness, faithfulness in a covenant relationship. Here's what Romans 4, 20 through 22 says. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's what took place in this moment. Abram, in history, believed that the seed was coming. And when I say seed, I don't mean the offspring of generations. I mean the one who is coming in his line. And the New Testament says this, that the gospel was preached ahead of time. In other words, the God who is outside of time in the second person of the Trinity was being revealed in a moment in the story. And when Abraham believed in God's promise, he was actually putting his faith in who? Jesus Christ ahead of time in history. The offspring from Genesis 3. The seed from Genesis 12. The eternal king in Samuel made covenant to David. What in the world? God is not only progressively unfolding himself. He's progressively unfolding the second person of the Trinity. And whenever humanity would put their faith in God, they didn't even know what they were doing, but they were putting faith in Christ, Hebrews says. And therefore, Christ was justifying them in history ahead of the law. What? In the world, this is why Jesus could stand on the Emmaus Road and unfold himself from all of history and said, I was there, I was there, I was there, I was there. I was the bridge of God's restoring redemption that every man and woman who entered into trust in my goodness was riding upon until I was fully revealed and all things in heaven and earth were brought unto my fullness. That is absolutely amazing. And do you see God was like, he trusts me. I never asked for him to be perfect. He believes I'm that good. Do you feel the head of the enemy being crushed from Genesis 3? Did God really say? Abram says, yes, he did. Do something to be like him. I don't have to. I'm justified by my trust in his promise. 
Do you feel the covenant marriage of God? I call this the engagement because here's what's going to happen in this point in the story. When I got engaged to my beautiful wife, I took her into Loose Park, into the middle. God orchestrated this amazing storm. Fireflies, which she had never seen in her life. Loose Park cleared like I had rented it. A rainbow filled the sky. I'm not joking you. We ran into the middle of Loose Park. I had a plan in my mind, and uh, God usurped it through the sky, one half being blue, one half being a storm, fireflies. It begins to rain. She starts dancing. I'm like, well, okay. There goes my plan. I get down on my knee, and what do I do? I have no idea what she's going to say. I have some idea. And I say, so does God. (laughs) And I say, vulnerably, I would like to love you all the days of your life. I want to serve you. Will you marry me? And then there's that pause, right? This is Genesis 15. Here's what happens. Abram, 85 years old, believes God. God says, let me take you outside. He walks Abram outside. He says, look up with me. Remember the immensity of the universe that we talked about last night? He says, look at all of those stars. He says, those are your descendants. (laughs) That's your family. Those are the righteous generations of your faith. They will enter into the same trust in my goodness that you're entering into. And then he says, would you make, go and get a few animals. We're going to have a sacrifice. And as was the custom in those days, two men would come and they would bring an animal and they would cut the animal in half. If you can imagine how gory that is right in half. And they would lay one half on this side and one half on this side. And the first man would look into the the other man's eyes and he would say, if I do not keep my oath here today, let happen to me what has happened to these animals. And he would walk through the middle of the animals. And then the other man would look into his eyes and he would say, if I do not keep my side of the oath, let happen to me what has happened to these animals. And he would walk through. Abraham prepares the animals, cuts them in half, and he falls into a what? Deep sleep again. And here comes God in a beautiful darkness hovering over him. And with a fire pot, a smoking fire pot, and a blazing torch, guess what God does? He says, will you marry me? He walks through both sides of the covenant. And the God of the universe says, Essentially, if I do not keep my oath to you, let happen to me what is right here. And Abram doesn't even get the chance to walk through. This is the engagement. The marriage is coming. But before the story can move forward, he says, and this is why a darkness was over him, your Generations will be in slavery for 400 years. They will be oppressed. 
Can you imagine this far in advance, multiple generations in advance, God is saying, your ancestors, the ones that will bless all the families in the earth, they're going to be slaves first. Until the full sin of the Amorites reaches, until it reaches fullness, and then I will let them go to the land I have promised. It's like, why are you telling me this? Why, God, are you forewarning me in a dream like this? And he wakes up. And he takes the word of God, which I love the grace of God, to even credit to him as righteousness, even when he knows he's about to screw up the plot immediately. What a gracious God. And he says, okay, it's not going to happen through my servant. It's going to happen through my body. God didn't say anything about anyone else's body. I just know it's coming through my body. So, Sarah, out of her frustration, still barren, still sitting with the weightiness of this promise, says, take the servant, Hagar, just like, Go ahead. Oh. Can feel the Lord like, no, 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 no. Okay, we've got something here. We've got a crazy story. Ishmael's born. Sarah freaks out. She realizes this is not the way it was supposed to go. She starts oppressing her. Hagar flees. She's welcomed back. Thirteen years go by. And Abram thinks, we're good. This is my boy, Ishmael. The son of the righteous legacy. You feel the connection? Ishmael's his only hope for the promise of God. Here comes the marriage. Genesis 17. Look at with me. 99 years old, almost 25 years in, 13 years into bonding with this son Ishmael, and God shows up again. 99, Abram was 99, and the Lord appeared to him, and he appears in a way he's never appeared in the story. I am the Lord Almighty. El Shaddai. Uh-oh. <laughs> what could this mean? This is an amazing moment in the story. He says, Walk before me blameless, and I will confirm my covenant with you. Abram falls face down. Look at the response. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Check this out. What happens on the wedding day? Yeah. Abram gets up off the ground. And El Shaddai, the ruler of the nations, says, Abram, 
I'm changing your name to Abraham, the father of many nations. Today, you take my name as my covenant partner. No bride counts it a sacrifice to give up her inheritance for the inheritance of her groom, her name for the name of her groom. And Abraham says, I take your name. You feel this? Abraham gets the name of God. They share in this covenant. And then God says, and by the way, the way I'm going to do this is through your barren wife. I love her. (laughs) I want to do this through covenant marriage. I want to burst forth from the womb of impossibility, the redemption of my story. No one will get credit for this but my glorious name. No self-strength will prevail in this story. I am going to win. (laughs) Gosh, do you feel this? And then he says, oh yeah, the ceremony's not over. We've exchanged our vows. Can we now exchange the ring? This is the part where all the men go, oh no. (laughs) He says, Here will be the sign of our covenant. You will cut a ring around and circumcise your private. (laughs) Why did God do this? Seriously. I mean, that day, this is like the worst team meeting in human history. Moses is like, Team meeting. Come on. If I lose my ring, which I did one time, and God miraculously helped me find in a pile of leaves, that's a whole other story. This was one of the most amazing days of my life. God, I'll just tell it. I lost my ring, and Julie has a dream when we lay down for a nap where it is, and it's in a pile of leaves in which I'm raking up. If I live in the forest. I'm raking up leaves, and there it is in my hand in the middle of the yard. I mean, miraculous. But when I lost my ring, did I cease to be married? Absolutely not. This is so important to get in the story. Because they will get confused about the sign of the covenant instead of the inward vow of faith in the covenant. God says, A marriage is not complete without a sign, a ring. And why does he put it in this very vulnerable place? Well, one is very practical. Every day when you're relieving yourself, you will remember the covenant. I actually believe that. Just very practically, every time you go, you'll remember who you're married to. Right? But I think there's something deeper. I want you to cut away the wasted self-strength. And what I am after is the offspring. It belongs to me. The covenant is in your reproductive organ. Because through the DNA of the seed, I will bring forth my righteous legacy. 
This was not random. Oh, but so painful. Okay. Thank you, Lord, for eight days old that he initiates in the actual law. (laughs) But they will remember this moment, the day they made covenant with the Lord. And anyone who wants to join the people of God will have to do this as well. Any male. And when God speaks about this, he laughs and bursts into laughter that his wife, his barren wife, is actually going to have a baby. And God says, that'll do. We'll name him Isaac, which means laughter. And the laughter of cynicism will turn to the joy of promise fulfilled. Don't you love the way God works? The joyful legacy of the kingdom. And a year later, well, soon after, a few months after, Sarah falls pregnant. And then she gives birth, and she bursts out into laughter when the baby is born. And she says, who would ever believe this? Call everyone, tell everyone you know, the Lord has done this amazing thing. And she's filled with laughter as God brings forth this son. Thank you, Lord. And then you see all these amazing moments of the marriage partnership where Abram at one point leverages his marital weight with God and begins to barter down in places of judgment, moving the heart of God, but God can't even find ten. And Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. But no marriage would be complete without this deep place of testing love. And this is the moment in the story that I think every time it's told, God leans in with this tender, vulnerable heart and begins to reenact and feel with such a depth. Go with me to Genesis 22. I want you to feel this deeply. Abram at this point is about 115, they think. Maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. He will end up living to 175 years old. And he live, they live in Beersheba, in the southern part of the Negev desert. And God one day comes and he says, My friend, my bride... Today is a day of testing. God, why do you test? Why do you test? Feel this. God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham. Now remember this language. What does Abraham respond? Here I am. Can you hear the words in the garden? Where are you? Again and again, those in the story will show up with confidence and trust, and they will say, here I am. This is the surrender of the joy of Abraham's life, okay? And God says, take your son, listen to this language, your only son. The word for this is only begotten, Now, at this point, Ishmael has been driven away, and God has promised to bless Ishmael in that line, but he said, I will bring redemption through this other son. And so when the Lord, in this moment, the Trinity is leaning over the balcony of heaven, 
feeling and anticipating this deep moment in history where there is no closer moment of, of acting where God himself will enter into the same story. And there they sit, and I can just imagine anticipating with tears, God is feeling this. Take your son, and the father looks at the son. Your only son, and they're feeling this moment. The son, do you feel this drama? The son that you love, all of your hopes, all of your promises are pinned on this one young lad. And I want you to walk with me. It will be about a three-day walk. And listen to this. Go to the region of Moriah. Moriah is the only other place it's stated is in 2 Chronicles 3.1. And Moriah is the place in Jerusalem where God will encounter David and Solomon will come and say, This is where my father met you. We're building the temple here. God's presence so is about to dwell in this moment that this will be the very spot he will want to put his name forever when Solomon builds the temple. And this is also Jerusalem where another son will go. Do you feel this? There are moments and places that God has nostalgia over in the story. God says, that little plot of ground right there, I will put my name forever. And one day I will make a name forever in that spot. Now listen to this. Go and worship the Lord. First mention of worship in the entire scripture. And here's what it will be. Sacrifice him there. As a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. At this point in the story, you are not supposed to read it as one of your Sunday school lessons. You are supposed to get up out of your seat, get outraged, and say, What kind of uh, sadistic, crazy God would ask a man to kill his only son? Really, think about this. Please take your son and kill him. Offer him holy as a burnt sacrifice. Set him on fire. Burn him up. And what I would like to say to you is this is absolutely crazy and cruel unless God himself is going to enter into this moment. What in the world is happening? Go there. Early the next morning, Abram gets up and goes. Immediate obedience. And listen to how this thing unfolds. He took with him two of his servants. He cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had told him. Three days later, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Do you hear this confidence in God? Hebrews says he believed that God would raise him from the dead. What in the world is going on? And now listen to what happens. 
Abraham takes the wood and places it on his son. Can you believe it? And the son begins to walk. And he carried himself the fire and the knife. And then Isaac looks up into the eyes of his dad and he goes, Father, I see the fire and I see the wood. Listen to this statement. And this one probably knocked Jesus down in heavens. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abram looks into his eyes and says, God himself will provide the lamb. Oh, at that point, the father begins to weep in heaven. And Abram begins to bind his son in rope. He ties him down to the wood. He raises the knife. And as he is lowering it, God in urgency screams from the heavens, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And he stops just before and Abraham falls on his son, weeping. And they look over and God says, now I know you love me. Now I know you love me. And they look over and caught in the thicket is a goat waiting to be sacrificed. They sacrifice. Hmm. And God says, you've got my heart. You have the nation. You have the land. And you will bless all the peoples on the face of the earth. You are my covenant partner. (laughs) Abraham will live 75 more years or so, 60 more years. Yeah. Let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll jump into the rest of the story. Amen. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. Can you feel how irresistibly attracted God is to faith? To vulnerable trust. And what you're about to see unfold, and I'm going to move pretty fast through these next generations of the story, is that God is so irresistibly attracted to trust, confidence, faith, that he will name himself after it. He so wants a human family that he will name himself into the human family. And he will begin to name himself after faith, generation after generation. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And each generation, the patriarch will have to stand in the inheritance and say, it's not just my father's story. It's my story too. Have you ever had that deep thing in your heart? I remember when the Lord called us to uh, risk and faith to move and plant this church. I felt like I'd heard the stories of my fathers, like John Peterson and Floyd and others and Pete. And something rose up in Dave and Nathan and, and us. And we said, we've heard the stories of our fathers. But what about the story you have for us in continuation of their story? And this is what happens. I want something to get down inside of you tonight that says, 
If I say yes to God, what can stop the eternal purpose of God from flowing through my life as well? What if I'm a strain and my life's work and who I am will live on and echo into eternity? God is so attracted to trust and to faith. And he does not have grandchildren. He's waiting for every generation to say absolutely 100% yes to your purposes and promises. To glorifying your name, God. I love that. And this is what you find. Nobody gets a free ride. God keeps creating impossible situations that he can bring forth his glory through tested love. In fact, right away, Isaac falls in love with this beautiful woman. It's right in the middle. It splits Genesis in half. It's almost like an allegory of the eyes of the groom meeting the bride and them running across. It's, one, it, it's kind of weird. It's the longest story in Genesis, and it's of a romance. Why, God, did you waste all those words on cute things? No, 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 no. Their eyes meet, and they move to one another. But guess what? He's fallen in love before he finds out she has the same condition as his mother, barren. And in one little verse, it says, Isaac has to pray. Guess how long he prayed for the barren womb to open? 20 years. Hello. (laughs) 20 years. It says Isaac prayed 20 years. And guess what? Redemption bursts forth again. In double measure. And there's these two cheeky twins wrestling in the womb. And one little fur ball that's red comes out. They're like, what in the world is this creation? (laughs) He will be his father's son, the skilled hunter. I can't, I don't have time to develop. But out comes another grabbing the heel of the first one out of the womb. And they say, His name will be Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver. How would you like to be named the deceiver? Well, he will live up into his name, but God will also encounter him. He will be the mama's boy of the story who stays close to the tent, it says, while the other one is the skilled hunter. It's a crazy rivalry. But God encounters Rebecca in that moment as she inquires and says, the older will serve the younger. Two nations are coming from your womb. What is going on? One will be blessed. And the father chooses this younger, the weak one. And the story plays out where He deceives his brother over a bowl of soup of giving him the birthright. And then, if if that wasn't enough, he deceives in conjunction with his mom, the father who's too weak to recognize, too old to recognize, and he steals the blessing, again the dynamic blessing of the father. And it's like Esau comes in saying, it's me. And he's like, And it says that Isaac just began to weep bitterly. And he's like, but don't you have another blessing? He's like, I can't take it back. That's how powerful the father's blessing came. 
what is going on in the story? And as soon as Esau finds out, and the, the whole lineage of the Edomites will come from him, and you'll see this historic pattern of sin once again through this line. As soon as he finds out, he says, I will kill my brother. Jacob wants to flee, and they say, I bless you. You will receive the story. The, you, the offspring will come through you. The nations will be blessed through you. But go back, full circle, go back to Haran, where Terah was from, and go to your uncle Laban and take a wife from that house. And so he runs for his life, literally. His brother's going to kill him. And on the way, he stops and puts his head down on a rock. And here comes the God of heaven connecting heaven and earth because they were never supposed to be separate. I love it. He sees a ladder. The angels of God are ascending and descending on this ladder. And God just begins to speak to him. I am the God of your father, Abraham. I am the God of your father, Isaac. Welcome to the story. Right? And he wakes up and he says, I just laid down on a rock, but surely the living God is in this place and I didn't even know it. You know how many times in our lives that is a true statement? Surely God is in this moment. I didn't even know it. And he names that place the house of God because the house of God is always the gate of heaven. Do you feel that? House of God, gate of heaven, Bethel. House of God, gate of heaven, because through my family will flow the presence of the kingdom. And God initiates covenant with him and says, welcome to the story. And uh, he makes it to Laban. He works seven years. He says, I was so in love, it was like only a moment. And then what you sow, you reap. The deceiver gets deceived. Uh-oh. He gets the wrong wife. That's a bad thing to wake up in the morning to. And Laban's like, not our custom, not my problem. Work for me seven more years. I'll give you the other daughter at the end of the week. Weird system, right? He works seven more years. And from these two women, as well as servants, 12 tribes come forth, 12 sons. And these become the sons of Israel. He's still named Jacob. He's returning. And on his return back home to the land, as God has said, you will come back to this land, he encounters his brother and he thinks it's over. So he sends his family ahead of him to be killed before him. He stays on the other side. And that night, he wrestles with God for his life. And he will not let go of this man. And he asks the man his name. And the man says, basically, none of your business. This is a theophany. (laughs) And in that place, God says, you've wrestled and struggled with God and you have overcome. Your name will no longer be deceiver. It will be now Israel struggles with God. Interesting name. And from this name will come the peoples. One of these sons will be born and he's the favored son. His name is Joseph. And uh, a wild story, I'm going to really summarize it quickly, is that he has a dream at 17, premature, where he says, Hello, family. All of you should be bowing down and worshiping me. Whoops. Takes a little time to grow into your calling, right? (laughs) 
right word, wrong interpretation, wrong application. Actually, he was right. It's just not a smart thing to say it, <laughs> right? Hold the treasure of the prophetic word. We have to develop in hearing from God and walking into our destiny. And oh boy, does God have a training program for him. It starts by being thrown in the bottom of a well. He goes down into a well. He's then picked up and sold as a slave. He's promoted to the head of the household. Then there's a little bit of a scandal in which God sees his heart. Then he is lowered into a dungeon prison. Then he is elevated to take the lead in the prison. Then he ends up getting another opportunity to try his hand at a dream. And this time he says, hmm, only God knows how to interpret dreams. I found that out in the bottom of a well. Feel the test, the maturing of a son, again called out of slavery, going down to Egypt. And from the prison, he is elevated by 30 years old, a 13-year journey to the vice president of Egypt because he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And what is so amazing is the dream he interprets is seven years of blessing, seven years of famine. And when there is the blessing, he's the vice president, and he begins to, in the wisdom of God, store up riches because he knows when the famine hits, all of the nations will flock to the economy of Egypt and be saved. And in that time, his people will also be saved. And they come to his feet, and they do not recognize him, and they literally bow down at his feet, according to the word of the Lord. And check this out. All of a sudden, they go back, they get their father, they bring their father back, Jacob in his elderly years. They're bowing down at his feet, and they recognize, oh my goodness, this is our brother. I mean, I can't. There's no comprehension of that. Shock, utter shock. And he has at his power vengeance to kill them. And here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see how God leverages every moment of the enemy's attack for your own redemptive destiny. He uses the sin in the story against you, the things that have gone wrong, and every one of them not only stops your destiny, but creates it, leverages it, and launches it forward for the saving of many lives. What a genius God of redemption! And there they start to live. And when you flip the page from the end of Genesis to Exodus 1, you have just taken one giant step about 400 years. Do you feel that? And guess what? A new king arises. And we'll hit this next slide. And the Israelites, it says, were fruitful and multiplied. Do you feel that God's story language? They were fruitful and they multiplied. Guess they went from 70 to 2 million. They came in a caravan of 70 and now they're around 600,000 men plus women and children. That comes out to about 2 million. And after generations, here's what begins to happen. 
They enter into slavery. And here begins this deep biblical imagery and motif of slavery. And what happens when you are made to work and perform for your place, you begin to lose your identity and your worth. And after generations, they no longer know who they are. They're holding a distant foggy memory of a promise of being a great nation, of a land that they would go to. They are now enslaved and oppressed, and there is this progressive attack of the enemy in Exodus 1, which starts with slavery and then moves to killing systematically the firstborn and then moves to throwing them into a river. And at this point in this story, there is this one named Moses. And they think the name Moses means drawn out or delivered. So one of the Hebrew women catches hold of this, and she sees that her child is beautiful. He's newly born. And he had, and the Pharaoh, after all of this oppression for generations, and and guys, this, the closest thing we understand is the generational poverty that comes from slavery where you begin to lose your sense of dignity and worth. You no longer know where you have come from or who you are. And your only value is in what you can do as a commodity. Do you feel this in the story? This is so important to grasp. The oppression that is on these people. And this woman decides to take her little uh, boy... And when she feels like she can't hide him anymore, she makes this basket with tar and she sends him down the river. And in the middle of him moving down the river, the purposes of God are just floating along. I mean, can you feel the sovereign trajectory? Just so vulnerable. God's saying, okay, I've got this thing. What? And that day, one of the daughters of Pharaoh happens to come down. And she sees this beautiful Hebrew child, and she can't bear to think of killing it. And if it was anyone else that found him other than the daughter of Pharaoh, he would have been immediately drowned. But she says, I love him. I want him. And she says to her servant, but I can't nurse him. Go and find a Hebrew woman to nurse him. And the servant goes, and guess who the servant picks out of everybody? Moses' mother. And Moses' mother gets to nurse the child and tell the age, and guess what Moses' mother begins to do? Sing the songs of God's faithfulness. And rehearse the stories of God. And something of the legacy and the lineage gets into this nursing child as she touches him and gives him blessing and lays hands. And he is a part somehow of his people, though he has been what? Orphaned. And the orphan son will lead an orphan and enslaved people into their sonship through the birth of a nation. This is what is about to happen. Moses grows up 40 years and like Joseph, takes his destiny to bring justice into his own hands. 
In my strength, I will deliver. He sees oppression, and how many know justice in our human strength and zeal does not work? He takes justice into his own hands. He kills a man. This is the hot word in the church right now, right? We will do justice. Let it be birthed of God and his spirit. And when he takes his destiny in his own hands, he kills a man. He botches the story. The Hebrews are like, you're going to kill us too? Pharaoh gets word. He realizes that he is in big trouble. He has committed a sin or a crime worth death. And he flees into another desert. And there he meets a shepherdess. He meets this woman and, and Midian. And he stays there for another 40 years. And his job for the next 40 years, from 40 to 80, is to lead a bunch of stinky sheep around a desert. Great training for the next 40 years of his life. Do you, this is wild stuff. About the time that he has lost all sense of self-strength, He's cruising along in the desert and he sees this insane phenomenon. There is a bush on fire, but it is not consumed. He's like, what is that? He goes over to check it out. And when he looks at it, trying to understand in his little brain, how is a bush on fire but not being consumed? From the bush comes a voice twice, like the story of Abraham, Moses, Moses. Exodus 3. Uh Uh-oh. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Welcome to the kingdom family story. What? The place you're standing is holy ground. It would be a good idea to take your shoes off right now. I'm going to so set you on fire that the nations are going to take off their shoes. You are going to be a man burning with the revelation of me. (laughs) This is an awesome moment. God says, I have seen something. I have heard something. And I have felt something. And it is called oppression. I am moved And I am grieved, and I am coming down. Love is coming down. So guess what? You go. (laughs) I'm coming, so you go. Moses is like, you've got the wrong guy. Is there anyone else in this desert? And his first question to God is often what our first question is. Who am I? God said, you've got it wrong. Please don't put identity before the revelation of who I am. God says back to him, "Um, my presence, I'm with you. But who am I? God's like, no, who am I? No, 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 you don't understand. Who am I? Yeah, I heard you the first time. (laughs) Goes this. I love my friend Jonathan's song. I have seen I am and now I know who I am. This was not going to be about Moses' self-strength. God was not going to enter into an identity war with Moses. He was very clear. I am. I am the foundation of reality. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And here's what that means. I am the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. You will not know me unless you travel with me and trust me. And on the way... 
thank you very much. I will reveal myself to you. I am the foundation of all things real. Will you come with me? Vulnerable, traveling trust. Will you walk with the Lord? And Moses enters into this moment, and at this point, he's totally undone. He's like, the last time I went back there, I killed somebody. Well, yes, but the past Pharaoh had just passed away, and a new one had arisen. He said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my son go to worship me. This will be a battle of sons. Yes, they think they're slaves, but I'm calling them by their identity. Son. They don't know it yet, but they are son. Do you feel that? Let my son go to worship me. The theme throughout the book of Exodus will be know the Lord. It's like 13, 14 times. To know the Lord, I am. To worship. And so from this point, Moses begins to enter in. And God said, to your forefathers, I revealed myself as God Almighty, but now I'm revealing myself by a name I've never revealed myself, Exodus 6. He says, I'm revealing myself as your covenant-keeping God. I'm about to bring forth a nation from slaves. Oh my goodness. The drama is mounting. He says, now go to Pharaoh, but he will not listen to you. You will be like God to him. And he says, I can't speak your words. Well, Hebrews says he was a man of eloquence and wisdom. He is stripped of all security in himself at this point. And God says, all right, cool, have Aaron. Aaron will be like the prophet. You will be like God. You will say whatever I command you to say, then Aaron will repeat it to Pharaoh. All right, cool, tag team. And so they go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, Hmm, I guess you forgot I'm the most powerful person on the earth. Take away their straw and leave the quota of bricks the same. They look at Moses and Aaron and they're like, what the heck have you done? You first kill someone. You go away 40 days, 40 years. You come back like the Messiah. Now our oppression is doubly as bad. We want to kill you, is what they say. Moses goes back to God and says, thank you very much. Great plan. That was awesome. And God says, why don't you go back and ask Pharaoh again? No, he's never going to listen to you. Thank you very much once again. What will be the sign that this will work? Well, the sign that this will work is you will come back to this very mountain. Thank you. So the sign will happen after I know I'm alive. Very comforting. Do you get that? We're like, give me a sign now so I know it'll be okay. He's like, when it's done, I'll give you the sign. Ah, bummer. (laughs) And here's what begins to enter in with the plagues. The plagues are all about the gods that they think are gods of Egypt. God, the Lord of heaven and earth, begins to establish his authority in signs and wonders above each of those gods, systematically putting them to shame. And each time Pharaoh says, okay, cool, go. No, just kidding. Okay, go. Nope. And they enter into this thing. And so finally God says this, it's your sons or my son you choose. And then he pulls Moses and Aaron aside and he says, I want to 
give you a story that you will rehearse for thousands of years. Would you like to know my story? They're like, all ears. Okay, (laughs) what's going to happen? He said, I'm about to choose my son over their sons. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to call it the Passover. Every year, you're going to have a seven-day party. It's a festival. The first day and the last day, you are to mark it with a celebration. In between, you are to eat bread, but you are not to have any leaven in it, and you are to eat it in a hurry because you will remember what is about to happen. And I want every single family, unless your family's so small that you can share with your neighbors, which I think is a wild little thing. And I want you to take a one-year-old lamb, spotless male, and I want you to sacrifice it and take the hyssop and place it in the blood and put it on the sides and tops of your doorpost. For tonight, as you eat all of the meat and waste none of it in your family home, you may not leave your house tonight. No one in your family may go outside. As you share the meal, you will remember that it is I who has saved you and passed over. And the death angel is going to move through the land and all of the firstborn are going to be slain except the firstborn of those covered by the blood of this lamb. And he says, and when your children ask you generation after generation after generation, you will tell them this story. Oh my goodness. And that night at about midnight, after they had all eaten and they're all in their houses, the angel passes over and weeping begins to erupt from all over Egypt for it said there was not one home where someone had not died. Pharaoh in an outrage says, leave my country, that's enough. And they begin to pour the wealth on them. And here go Two million people without any kind of transportation or government or any kind of understanding of how to function. All they have is the bread that they're carrying with them into the desert. Now, how would you like to be Moses leading Kansas City into a desert with no running water? We were down during Katrina and we saw what happened to a population when water ran out. It gets very very nasty. What will humanity do when there is no water? Wow. (laughs) Who wants Moses' job? I've got to take two million slaves and somehow create a society in the desert? What in the world would you do? They begin to flee, and here's what happens. They reach a point of no return. They're stuck at the banks. This is Exodus 14. They're stuck at the banks of the sea, the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, they hear this rumbling, shaking the earth as the most powerful cavalry, 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 no L, cavalry is another thing coming. It's the most powerful army on the face of the earth comes rumbling behind them in fury with the loss of their children on their hearts and minds. What? You think an army is enraged just to go into battle? Try when it's really that personal. 
Here is a defenseless group of slaves with no military training standing at a bank of a water they cannot cross, hemmed in behind by the most powerful army on the face of the earth, shaking the ground. And they look at Moses and Aaron and they begin to scream at them. Have you brought us out here to kill us? What are you doing? We want to go back into slavery. And Moses rises up. And actually God speaks and says, Why are you crying out to me? This isn't a time for prayer. It's a time for action. I love that. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? God's like, what are you doing praying right now? Moses, lift up your staff over the water. I'm about to part it. And Moses says, today, Israel, God fights for you. Watch this. You have been oppressed. Now watch him fight. And here's what is about to happen. You guys are going to love this. I love this moment. The angel of the Lord in the pillar of cloud that has led them to the sea moves around behind them in between the army and them. And then guess what happens? Darkness covers the Egyptian army and stops them at a halt while light covers the people of Israel. As Moses raises his staff, the waters part from side to side, and guess what comes forth? This intense wind that brings forth dry ground. On the first day, God brought forth light and darkness. On the second day, God split the waters and the atmosphere. On the third day, God brought forth Land, what is God saying? I am not some tribal deity. I am the God of heaven and earth. And today the God that made all of creation creates for himself a people. What? Do you feel this? Now some have said that it was ankle deep water that they walked through. I think that's even a bigger miracle if the whole of Egypt's army drowned in ankle deep water. It was like perfect splashes right into the nostrils that choked them out. It says that this body of water opened up with walls and they all crossed through in a night. You know what? If they were double file going through this, it would be an 800 mile line for 35 days. Guess how big this opening had to be to get through in one night. 5,000 people shoulder to shoulder wide to get through one mile long. God is serious about this. They're walking through children, babies. They're carrying babies on their hip. I mean, I can't even travel on an airplane. These guys are in the desert with their children, their possessions. These are families. And they're looking back at darkness over the over the army with a pillar of cloud and fire as they walk through on dry ground looking at the walls of water 5,000 people across to get 2 million through. And as soon as they get to the other side, they're all out of breath, have all their stuff, they're over on the other side, and there they're standing looking back and they see the angel of the Lord lift and the army starts coming forward into the sea after them. 
At which point they do not know what to do. They're looking, and as they come in, God sends a confusion. The wheels begin to fall off the chariots and bust into the ground. And then God says to Moses, raise your staff again. And with one raise of the staff of God, all of the generations of their slavery are baptized in a Red Sea. And they are liberated from generational slavery and oppression. Baptized. Baptized. Liberated from slavery. They're looking and they don't know what to do. Just silence over two million people as the loudest noise you've ever heard of an ocean 5,000 people wide crashes in. Utter silence. And then Moses, Exodus 15, starts to sing. And two million people join him in a song. Can you imagine the sound? They say the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. The unfailing love of God has saved us and he will bring us to our holy dwelling. And worship is the only response for deliverance and salvation from slavery. And they begin to worship God. But guess what? God's great dream is not just to save us for slaver- from slavery, but to save us into sonship. The worship movement has got to grow up into maturity as sons and daughters. You ready for this? So they begin to walk three months through the desert. And what they find out in the testings that God begins to bring is that you can set the bird free from the cage, but it's much more difficult to set the cage out of the bird. It's easy for them to get out of Egypt, but it is not so easy for the mentality of slaves without identity to get out of them. And this will become the process of him taking them by the hand and growing them up into maturity in his love and identity so that they can showcase the original purpose of humanity to all of creation and become the people for which God will bless all other families of the earth. Uh Uh-oh, what's going to happen? Three months they walk through until they arrive at a mountain. And they get back to the mountain, and guess what mountain it is? The very one God said, when you come back here, you'll know I was with you. (laughs) Now, to help you understand where this, how this scenario worked, um, I want to just make the whole of the Torah very simple for you in a moment, okay? From Exodus 19 all the way through about Numbers 10, One year, if you look in your Bible, Exodus 19 to Numbers 10, that is one year at a stinking mountain. (laughs) And at that mountain, you're going to see God begin to work and move. And then he commissions them to go into the promised land with spies. And when they go into the land, they go for 40 days and they come back in disobedience. They do not believe the Lord. 
And for each day, he gives them one year of wandering. So from about Numbers 11 to Numbers 25, you've got 38 years in those short chapters. Then from Numbers 25 through the end of Deuteronomy, you have one year with the new generation. The old one has passed away, and they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River listening to Moses give his final words. That will help make sense of how, and this is why it's so exciting. Go to Exodus 19 with me really quick. When they get to Mount Sinai, and this is really important to understand. When they get to Mount Sinai, God says to them, I'm the one who's delivered you out of Egypt. I've carried you like on my wings and brought you to myself. And then he assigns them their identity and their vocation. And here's what it is. You will be my treasured possession. All the nations are mine, he says. Don't get confused about that. The story will include everyone. But you will be like the crown jewel on my crown. You will be my treasured son to me. I love the intimate affection of the father there. Do you know that's who you are? The treasured possession of the Lord. He loves you. That's why you were created. But then he says, there's something more. I have a beautiful destiny. You will be a kingdom of priests. A priest is someone who takes the heart of God, right? And the pain of the world and says, these two things belong together. We join them together. He says, you will have lots of occupation, but all of you will have a preoccupation. And that will be a kingdom of priests. Your preoccupation will be me. You will all be priests. Okay, check this out. You'll have this priestly heart. Now, he will actually set up a priestly line. And then he says, and you will also be a holy nation. What does he mean by this? You will showcase humanity's original design. You will reflect the glory of God. This is what I'm setting you up to be, to reflect my image to all the nations. And he invites them from that point into covenant. And this is the birth of a nation. He takes them up on the mountain, and he says, everyone consecrate, I'm coming to speak to you. And this is what we know as the Ten Commandments. Now, here's what the Ten Commandments are. God comes down and burns like a fire on a mountain and begins to shake a mountain. We think of the Ten Commandments as these little bullet points on silly pieces of paper. It was these ten living words flowing out of the jealous heart of the God. And he shakes the mountain, the people are terrified, and he begins to speak. And here's what the Ten Commandments are about. He orders humanity with this. The God who spoke and created all people is now ordering his people with his voice. And what he is ordering them with is he is saying, the supreme value in the universe is relationship with me with all your being and honor, trust, relationship with one another. He says, honor me. I am a jealous God. And God alone can be jealous because he knows we're the best thing for him. When we get God, we get our highest joy is what he's saying. When you get me, you get your good. So I'm jealous for you. For wholeheartedness. Don't make idols and worship other things. Your affections are mine. Then he says, I love this. Honor your father and mother because this is a family kingdom. Don't. Don't break the covenant of marriage with adultery because I value what it speaks about the kingdom of God. 
Do not deceive because honesty brings trust amongst people. Do not covet and have competition with your neighbor. Do you feel these words? And God at this point is ordering the heart of a people. He's saying this is what humanity was designed to live like. And he takes these words on tablets and he writes them with his own finger for Moses. And then he proceeds to open up civil and ceremonial laws. What is this about? Why do we love Leviticus and the law? Well, the reason is because God took a nation of slaves and he gave to them a just, caring, beautiful society that they were denied in oppression in Egypt. Does that make sense? What would you do? You've got to know about sanitation, government, how to function civilly, ceremonially, as well as how to function before God. And he gives them the law as though he's their president and their king, and he is. What does God look like ruling a nation? And this is what's transpiring and going on. And then when he gives all that to him as he's on the mountain— He says, now read these to the elders and ask them to enter into covenant. They say, yes, we'll enter into covenant, Exodus 24. He says, well, this is going to require blood. So he sprinkles the blood on the people. He makes a sacrifice. And they say, yes, we will obey the Lord. We will be the holy nation, the kingdom of priests, the treasured possession. Everyone's all excited about it. They make covenant with the Lord. And then God says, I get the desire of my heart, Exodus 25. I can now come and dwell with you. And he begins to unfold the tabernacle where the God of heaven and earth will come and live in the center of their ordinary lives as they camp around him. It will be the meeting place of heaven and earth and God himself in humility will come and live in tent of skin just like them. And he says, whenever I move, you move. I am the center of your ordinary life. Oh, come on. And he teaches them once again how they will relate to him as a holy God so that he can have relationship with them and move with them and be with them. And all of a sudden, Moses is coming down and he hears a rumbling and he hears a party. He hears a song. People drunk everywhere. And his assistant Joshua goes, Sounds like uh, some kind of a sound of, of, vi- of war. And he goes, this is not the sound of victory. It's the sound of defeat. He gets down. He sees that they've made a golden calf to which Aaron says, they gave me their gold. I threw it into the fire and out popped a calf. I have no idea what happened. Moses is like, oh, really? He takes the covenant God has written with his own finger on a burning mountain, and he proceeds to destroy the covenant, and God does not strike him dead because God's saying, my heart is ripped in two covenantally, just like you have destroyed these tablets. And God says, by the way, I'm wiping out the whole nation, and I'm starting over. Restart with you, Moses. And Moses, instead of saying, all right, cool idea, at least I made it, gets on his face and says, God, we are your people, and appeals for mercy over judgment. He presses the mercy button in the heart of God, and he finds out that mercy always outweighs judgment. Learn to pray. He knows what dad is like. 
And God goes, you know me. Just kidding. I'm not. (laughs) Oh my. It's like, what? What? You changed God's mind? And then he says, but I'm sorry. You can still have the promise. I won't kill you all. I won't wipe you out. But I am not going with you. I'm just sending an angel. And Moses is like, again, this is the test. What's more important, the promise giver or the promise? He looks back at God and he goes, I've been in that tent of meeting. I'm face to face with you like no man has ever been. I want you, my exceeding reward, more than any promise. In fact, we're staying right here in this stinking desert at this mountain until you go with us. How will I know your ways if you do not go with me? He says, what else will distinguish us from all the people on the earth? There's no way to be a holy nation unless we have the presence of God. And God says, Oh my goodness, you've got me. (laughs) You know me. He says, I'm going to go with you. And Moses goes, while I've got your dad heart on a string, I'm just going to ask for one more thing. (laughs) Let me see the fullness of your glory. Now this is a kid that wants it all, hey? And God goes, that will kill you. But what I'll do is I'll hide you in my hand and I'll pass by you and I will declare my glory to you. He passes by him and instead of bringing a gold mist, guess what he begins to declare? His substantive family nature. I am a God who shows favor without any merit. I am gracious. I am a God who suffers in your shoes. I am compassionate. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. You can't outdo me. Oh, there might be judgment for a few generations, but if you press the mercy button, my faithfulness will continue to a thousand generations. What? And then he says, come back up the mountain, and this time you write on the stones, I'll give the covenant again. This is the foreshadowing of resurrection in the story. From this point, he orders a census. They numbers up, because when they go into their promised land, he realizes they got to go as an army, not just families. And so they or, he orders them up. That's why it's called numbers, the census. Sends in the spies. The spies don't get it right. They says two see God and the rest see big giants. <laughs> right? And at that point, they get 40 years of wandering until they all die in that desert. Here's what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is only Moses, Joshua, and Caleb survived a generation of two million people. Now the new generation's there. They can't remember Sinai. They can't remember any of the Red Sea. All of that is a distant memory. So here's what Deuteronomy is. Three sermons from Moses, a man about to die. And this time the mountain's not on fire. The man is on fire. 
And it's not God who's speaking. It's God speaking through Moses. And God allows Moses to set the whole course of interpreting the Ten Commandments by saying this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Of which the very God in flesh will come and say, that was the right word. If you do this, you sum up the whole law. Here's Moses standing before a new generation like this aged wise man. He retells the whole story of Sinai. He tells this new generation all that their fathers did and rehearses the story. And then he says, today choose life or death. Enter into covenant with God. Generation, arise and love the Lord. Today you will go in for 600 years, your ancestors. We have been waiting to enter into the ancient word of promise. Will you choose life? And they rally and they say, we choose life. And then Moses steps out of line with God and God says, I'm sorry, son, you can't go in but come up with me on a mountain and look into the land. Moses comes up on the mountain, looks into the land of promise, comes down, appoints Joshua soon after he dies. Joshua takes the generation, shaking his father and the Lord is gone. And God, he's shaking his boots and God comes in and says, strong and courageous, this is your hour. You've spent all that time in the presence of your father, getting his grace, in the presence of me, getting my grace. Now, arise and go in your strength. They go in to the land. Oh, what a story. And guess what happens? The priests take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle, and as the hem of their robe touches the water this time, that's how vulnerable it is, it moves back and piles up, and guess what's the name of the town? Adam. Redemption all the way back. (laughs) Says the Jordan piled up to Adam, the city of Adam. They walk through, and this is a new generation's Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. They take 12 stones out. They build a memorial. And then they begin to conquest the land. Little by little by little, they inherit the land. This is the story of Joshua. The conquest is chapters 5 through 12. The land allocation is chapters 13 through 24. And then the cycle of judges begins. This is a 400-year period, and here's what happens. In this period, the people of Israel begin to do exactly what Moses said not to do in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second law. It was burning out of Moses' being. And Moses said, if you keep it, you will be blessed. If you do not, all of these curses will happen to you, including losing the land, being exiled, being conquered by a foreign, foreign army. Even your mothers will be eating their children, starving to death, and everything will be decimated. And in this cycle of the judges, they begin to move in this horrible cycle of apostasy, turning from God, God's covenant partner, and we'll look at this tomorrow night, breaking his heart in two. And then God hears their cries of repentance. He will raise up a deliverer called a judge and bring the nation back into alignment with God, route the foreign enemies, drive them out until they get comfortable again, and they go into apostasy again. At which point they will cry out. God will raise up a judge. 
They will drive out the enemies, and again they will go around this hopeless cycle again and again and again and again for 400 years. This goes on until the word of the Lord is rare in the land, and no one has vision. This is what hopeless cycles do in our life. When you hit a pattern you cannot overcome, you lose all hope. And it says hope was gone and the word of the Lord was rare. There was no vision. And at that point, guess who begins to cry out? A barren woman. Look at the women in the story every time. Arising in faith in the image of God. She begins to cry out that God would hear her weeping and asking for year after year after year. It says she wept bitterly and to the point where God, it said, actually was stopping her fruitfulness in intimacy with him. What in the world? Until one day, she's so desperate. She says, God, if I have a son, he is all yours. And this son will be born, and he will be the last of the judges. Samuel will arise, and he will arise hearing the call of the Lord, and the vision of God to get the plot back on course will be reengaged and reinitiated through this man. He will live a beautiful, fruitful life, but unfortunately his sons don't follow in his wake. And at that time, the people will say, we want what all the other nations have. We want a king. Now God had promised that kings would come even from Sarai's womb. So he had promised kings would come, but he wanted to be the king of the people. And they begin to ask, can we be like all the other nations? And God said, when are you going to stop trying to be like all the nations? It's my presence that distinguishes you. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're a covenanted and married people. You aren't the same as all the nations. I am your king. Why do you want something so much less? But he says, okay, wish granted. I'll give you a king exactly like yourself. Welcome to democracy. Okay? And here comes the strapping, handsome donkey wrangler. <laughs> That's how he's introduced in the story. This guy out trying to wrangle a donkey. It's stubborn as he is. Crazy foreshadowing. And basically what ends up happening, when you get to 1 Samuel thirteen thirteen, he has offered a sacrifice without the prophet Samuel. Samuel comes to him and says, Why in the world have you done this? And listen to what he says in 1313. If you would have obeyed the Lord, you would have had a kingdom that lasted forever. Saul missed David's eternal dynasty by this much. And then he says, verse 1314, but um, God is raising up a man after his own heart. A few chapters later, Saul goes out in his own zeal and does not fully obey the word of the Lord through Samuel. Samuel comes to him and confronts him. Saul tries to make himself look good. And he says, I know I've done this. I know I've sinned, but honor me in the sight of the people. At which point, Samuel turns and walks away as God walks away from the kingdom. This is an amazing moment in the story. As Samuel walks away, Saul grabs his garment and rips it. Samuel 
turns around and looks him in the eyes and says, as you have ripped my garment, I, God rips the kingdom from your hands. Oh my goodness. At which point God says to Samuel, um, excuse me, the times have changed. Quit mourning. Fill up your oil in the horn and go to the house of Jesse. The times of mourning are over. I'm about to do something amazing. If you want a king, I'm going to give you a king. Seven brothers line up. Samuel's like, looks good. Ah, I don't want to make this mistake again. God, what are you saying? God, what are you saying? God, what are you saying? All the way down. That's it. And he says this prophetic statement. Have you any other sons? Uh, there's this one worthless dude out in the... Okay. We'll get him. It's like he knew it wasn't there yet. And in comes this handsome, ruddy little turkey. <laughs> He's been out doing his deal, singing his song, coming in. Probably the youngest, you know, kicking in, lighthearted, up for taking the world, conquering. You know any of those? He comes in with a smile on his face. His brother's like, The power of God's spirit falls down on Samuel. And he takes his horn of oil. He says, you are the man after God's own heart. And he begins to pour oil down like the favor of the Lord down. And the power of the spirit comes on this young man. And great things are about to happen. We're going to look tomorrow night at how the kingdom develops Amen. We love you, Lord.